Um, oh, I've never done a top of an episode before. <laughs> hey, everyone. This is Leon from Fiasco and Prologue Projects. On this week's members-only episode of 5 to 4, we have a conversation with Kermit Roosevelt, one of the members of the Presidential Commission on the Supreme Court. Roosevelt was one of more than 30 of the nation's top legal minds, chosen by President Biden, to summarize the arguments for and against reform of the Supreme Court. As you'll hear, Roosevelt went into his work on the commission thinking term limits would be enough to save the court. The experience ended up changing his mind. This is 5 to 4, a podcast about how much the Supreme Court sucks. Welcome to 5 to 4, where we dissect and analyze the Supreme Court cases that have made our civil liberties disappear the way Clarence Thomas has disappeared from the public eye. (laughs) I'm Peter, and I'm here with Michael. Hey, everybody. What is that about? Is he dying? (laughs) For those who don't know, at the time of recording, we're basically a couple weeks past Clarence Thomas being announced as hospitalized with like a mysterious illness or infection. He got out of the hospital, but he has not been seen since, has not been appearing at oral argument. Mm-hmm. Just appearing via teleconference. So he, he does appear to be alive, but there's a question of, is he, is he hiding a serious illness of some kind, or is he just sort of laying low while his wife enjoys a little bit of the public spotlight? <laughs> 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 Perhaps trying to dodge some uh, intrepid reporters, you know, on his way to work right. or whatever. Right. Either way, it's exciting. The Supreme <laughs> Court's rarely so exciting. Yeah, that's right. The thrill of not knowing. Yeah. Some housekeeping items. Rhiannon, busy, and even weirder, I'm not actually part of this episode. <laughs> We're about to show you an interview between Michael We're and- We're not going to show it to you. Whatever. Jesus. <laughs> When Peter's not on the episode, it gets very ordinary. <laughs> <laughs> okay, yes. You are about to hear a conversation between Michael and Penn professor Kermit Roosevelt, who was part of the Biden Supreme Court Commission and had some had some choice thoughts about the commission, right? Yeah, that's right. You know, I think it's particularly good time to air this interview. When this episode drops, it'll have just been a few days after Ketanji Brown Jackson was confirmed. And so I think there is a lot of rightful celebration uh, on the left about this. A great, young, talented jurist who's also the first black woman to ever serve on the Supreme Court. It's a promise fulfilled by Joe Biden. There's just a lot to be happy and excited about. At the same time, though, like the court's still broken and it's still broken on a number of axes, right? It's still like lacking democratic legitimacy. It's still heavily tilted to uh, an arch-conservative neo-Confederate wing, right? So there are still all these problems, which is what the report was ostensibly supposed to be about, right? Yeah. Uh, so, you know, to take a step back, Biden put together a commission to sort of study the Supreme Court with an eye on on reform. Mm-hmm. That commission published a report a few months back that was ultimately pretty tepid, right? It just sort of like mm-hmm. went over the pros and cons of reform and the, you mm-hmm. know, the history of reform and, and shit like that. And I think everyone who's sort of 
had a, at least a long shot hope that the commission might be leveraged to actually engage in some kind of reform or at least take meaningful steps towards reform, was disappointed that the commission ultimately took their mandate and went down this really milquetoast road, right, where they just said, well, Mm -hmm. you know, the Supreme Court's a land of contrasts and we could do reform, but maybe the court would lose its legitimacy. And so Kermit Roosevelt, who was on the commission, wrote a piece where he mentioned that he was sort of taken aback by how little the ostensible liberals on the commission seemed to understand like the weight of the current moment, right? Yeah. And I do think it's important to like understand the the political moment that this came out of, which was really back in 2020, that brief period where everybody was a little excited that maybe not only was Joe Biden going to win, but the Democrats were going to have comfortable majorities in both houses of Congress. And that might mean there could be some like meaningful chance at reform. And Biden was an opponent of that, at least early on. He was very vocal about not thinking uh, the Supreme Court needed reform. But because of sort of consistent pressure from his left, he relented and his, his sort of middle position was, well, I'll have this commission. I'll get all the brightest legal minds from all sides of the aisle to write up a comprehensive report on the state of the Supreme Court and potential reforms and what they would and wouldn't do and blah, blah, blah. Um, And this was supposed to be like a, it could be a stepping stone to reform or it could be like, you know, the old saying about committees, you know, blue ribbon commissions or where you send ideas to die or, Mm -hmm. or whatever. And so unfortunately it seems like it was the latter, right? That this was, more than anything, just uh, designed to take the wind out of the sails of this. Right. Or at least that you cannot expect a bunch of liberal academics to be the vanguard of a reform movement, right? Yeah. That the medium was inadequate from the start. Right. And their mandate was was never to make recommendations. It was just mm-hmm. to describe the arguments and all that. But still, this is a an important moment that maybe calls for some courage. Right. And who could afford to be more sort of courageous and vocal than a bunch of fucking tenured professors who have Mm -hmm. the cushiest job in the world, right? They can't be fired, like, unless they're fucking convicted of a crime in some some schools. (laughs) And uh, they make a ton of money. Yeah. (laughs) You know, like, what do you have to worry about? Like, you can speak your mind. So the conversation with Kermit was, I thought, uh, really interesting to get into the mind of someone who I think is genuinely committed to reform and who was on this commission, you know, and what he thinks of it and the fallout of it. Yeah. I think we'll go to the interview in a moment, but we should also say, A, congrats to Katanji Brown-Jackson. Pretty obvious she couldn't have done it without us. That's right. I imagine she will acknowledge us in some form um, in the coming (laughs) days. B, we just did a live show in Oakland. I think maybe we'll have a more thorough discussion of it when Ree's back. But I think it's safe to say that we just absolutely crushed it, right? It was, I mean, it was a fantastic experience for every fan who attended. Most of them came up to us afterwards and said we would have paid way more 
than you guys were charging. And we said, no, that's okay. You know, <laughs> that's not why we do it. In, in a span of one week, 5-4 had a live show and Katanji Brown Jackson got confirmed to the Supreme Court, which was the, the bigger moment for legal culture. Hard to say. It is. The way that the news is covering it, it feels like it's Katanji. But I think when we look back 100 years from now. Yeah. It'll be that'll it'll be a different picture for sure. First five four live show is uh, an inflection point in history. Yeah. All right. Enough shenanigans. Here is our buddy Michael talking with Professor Kermit Roosevelt. Thanks for joining us, Kermit. We're really excited. Yeah. Thanks a lot. I'm excited to be here. So maybe you can tell us a little bit about your view about the commission. I believe you think the report was a success, despite some criticism it's it's taken. So maybe you can lay out the case for us that this was a job well done. Yeah. So I think the commission did a good job of the job that it was given. Right. And I did think at the time that it was given the right job. I'm getting a little bit less confident in that as time goes by and nothing happens. But mm-hmm. here's the way that I used to think about it, at least. You know, if you know that there's a problem and you're pretty confident what the problem is and you just want to figure out how to fix it, then you get a commission of people who believe that and have them tell right. you how to fix it. And some people were there with respect to the Supreme Court, and I'm kind of there now, I think. But President mm-hmm. Biden wasn't, and that's totally fine. You know, he didn't have a clear sense of whether there was a problem that needed to be addressed. And so he wanted, you know, a broad, bipartisan, every viewpoint represented assessment. Is there a problem? And if there is a problem, how could we fix it? And so he got a big commission together with lots of viewpoints represented, and we debated things, and we researched, and we presented arguments pro and con in the strongest way that we could. Um, And that was our charge, and I think we did it pretty well. You know, and what I said at the time, and what I'm getting a little bit more skeptical about now, is that's a great first step. You know, and now what needs to happen is some political actor needs to read that report and say, here's what I agree with, here's what I don't agree with, and take action if they decide that action is necessary. And I was hoping that would happen. Um, I'm not sure that it is going to happen, you know, maybe because they don't agree action is necessary or maybe because this all was just sort of a feint, you know, and that's what people were saying at the beginning, which I didn't believe. So you were working with some people who were pretty close to Biden, though, right? Like Bob Bauer and such. I don't know how much you actually worked directly with them, but was that the sense you got from them? Was that this was a sincere effort to understand this problem or whether there is a problem? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I think everyone on the commission took it very seriously and felt that way. We thought this is a weighty responsibility because we have to be candid and open and honest and comprehensive because we're providing information that important people will rely on in making important decisions. So the report, to view it as important that it was bipartisan, that it it sort of presented every side of the argument, that you spoke as one voice, it was submitted unanimously, uh, every commissioner signed off, which I think was in the spirit of the report. That being said, three commissioners released statements along with the report. How do you feel about that? (laughs) Well, it seems to cut against the spirit to submit this report that presents all sides 
and, and doesn't make recommendations and then to release a separate statement saying, yeah, but this is the right point of view. Right. And here's what the recommendation should be. And in these cases, they were kind of trash statements who said that everything's good, the Supreme Court's great, and there shouldn't be any reforms. And everybody who suggests otherwise is a partisan hack in so many words. Yeah, well, you know, so I wouldn't necessarily have used the phrase trash statements, but I mean, I disagree with them. Yeah. And I do think that it goes against the spirit of the commission to release some official statement. So I published an op-ed later, and I've right. written in various places saying, I was on the commission, here's my experience, here's what I think, this is my personal view. But to do that in an official way does, I think, detract from the good faith attempt of everyone else on the commission to present different perspectives. And, you know, we had some people leave the commission. Right. Because they said, we don't think we're going to be able to put our names on this report, which was sort of astonishing to me because the report really just says some people believe this, some people believe this other thing. Yeah, it was like Jack Goldsmith and uh, someone else, I forget, but conservatives. And <laughs> Caleb Nelson. Yes. Yeah, they were conservatives. I mean, their participation was great. Yeah. I actually worked with Caleb on a fair amount of the report, and it was a good experience. He was, you know, open, sincere brilliant, engaged. Um, I'm sorry that they left. So I think this is a good sort of microcosm of what is often my frustration with the liberal academy. And I, I don't mean this as a personal attack on you specifically. I, I think you're right that releasing an official statement is, is not in the spirit of the report. I, I agree with that. At the same time, when I was trying to pull up the report in preparation for this interview, you get this landing page. It says final report, and there's like a little sentence, and then there are these two big links. And the links are to these two statements. The page looks like it's to provide you links to these statements. And the result is, I think, somebody who's not super tech literate and doesn't know who these people are, the first thing they're going to read if they go to this page are going to be these statements about why court reform isn't necessary, and there's no response. There's no statement saying, actually, this is a huge problem. You know, we're in a moment of constitutional crisis. And that's a little frustrating. It's very minor, but at the same time, it's like unanswered bad faith arguments is almost like the heart of everything that's going wrong in the, the illegal academy. Is, is that fair? Yeah, I think you're being fair. I mean, honestly, that is kind of how I would diagnose the problem. Yeah. It's that the left is saying, hey, let's all get together in good faith and try to work on this. And then right. people on the right are defecting, right, and engaging in behavior that advances their own goals at the expense of the collective project. And then the question for the left is, do we retaliate or do we keep trying to play by the rules? And what you see there is you've got the independent statements from the right and nothing from the left because we're trying to play by the rules. And this is supposed to be speaking with one voice, giving different perspectives, right. not in an official capacity saying what our individual views are. So there weren't supposed to be those statements. Ideally, that wouldn't have happened. The question then was, do we have other statements that's going to blow up the whole process so that you end up with 50 different individual statements? Right. Or do we try to hold it together? And we tried to hold it together. And I'm unhappy to hear about that web design. I mean, I think that's terrible. I don't know why it happened that way. That's a wholly separate question. Yeah, you're not responsible for how the White House presents this material. I, I wouldn't hold you responsible. They should have been buried. You know, they should not be very prominent yes. on the website. Because if you want to, you can write an op-ed right. saying what your views are. And that's what I did. And that's what Larry Tribe and Nancy Gertner did. Right. And that's appropriate. 
Yeah. Your piece that prompted this interview was in like the Harvard Journal of Law and Policy. And like that's an appropriate forum for airing these sorts of views or the op-ed page of the New York Times or, or whatever, not on the same page as the report and maybe more prominently listed. So I, I'm glad you agree with me on that. Although I think it does sort of get to the frustration with this, which is like, it's like a five alarm fire and somebody needs to figuratively grab Joe Biden by the shoulders and shake him, you know, and the Democratic leadership and, and, and tell them like, this is a big fucking deal, right? And that doesn't come across in the report in my mind. I reread all 250 pages of it. And although some of it was good, I still think coming away from it, you don't necessarily leave thinking that this is something that needs to be addressed right now. But I do think it needs to be addressed right now. I totally agree with that. And, you know, the, the, the one thing that I was trying to do with the report that I thought was both important and within the appropriate scope of the report was to make sure that it was clearly stated among the some people believe this, some people believe this, that some people believe democracy is under attack and the Supreme Court is participating in that attack. Yes. And that that is why we need reform. Yeah. Um, and there were a bunch of people on the commission who believed that. And, you know, we did our best, I think, to make sure that that came through clearly, but it could only come through as one of multiple perspectives, because there's also the perspective that this is the way everything is supposed to be. Right. So I want to talk a little bit about the substance of your piece. My understanding from the piece is that you understood the arguments for and against expanding the size of the Supreme Court. And your understanding of those arguments didn't change. You understood the arguments that it was not democratically representative of how the last several decades of elections have gone and the arguments that they have become extremely sort of right wing to the point where, you know, it's maybe not necessarily even legitimate, the, the sort of anti-democracy stances they're taking. And you weren't persuaded by those. And instead, you believed term limits was the appropriate reform. But that changed. And if I understand the piece correctly, it changed in part because of your experience with other liberal law professors. Is that fair to say? Yeah, that's exactly right. So, you know, going in, I thought there's a problem. Right. Definitely. And it would be good to fix that problem. But I did worry about escalating the cycle of reprisals and so on. And I thought, you know, a solution that we can all live with and that will get us to the right place, not immediately, but eventually and keep us there mm -hmm. is term limits. Because if you can get appointments to follow the outcome of presidential elections, you know, and even better if you can get a popular vote for presidential elections, which is a separate topic. I agree. <laughs> but if you can get appointments to follow presidential elections, then eventually you will not have a minority controlling the federal judiciary. Right. Which would be good. Yeah. You know, and that's that's where I was trying to get. But that changed. <laughs> but that changed because there was this astonishing degree of sort of complacency and naivete among highly respected liberal law professors. See, now you're singing my song. <laughs> this is yeah, well, it was, I mean, it was, it was a shock to me. Yeah. Because, you know, I was like, hey, we're here together to preserve the institutions and we understand something bad is going on. And then all of this sort of institutionalist, let's be civil, let's respect norms, let's understand that our hallowed institutions need to be defended and, you know, shouldn't be called out when they're attacking the basis of our democracy. Yeah. That was what shocked me, hearing that from the left. I expected to hear that from the right. Right. 
So yeah, so that can be radicalizing, huh? <laughs> well, yeah, because I, I was thinking, you know, here are these people and we're going to work together and we have sort of a common understanding of the problem. And then I realized they're actually not prepared to do anything. Yeah, yeah. You know, so the liberal establishment is not going to come to the rescue. I think that's right. You know, we've been accused of treating liberal law professors as a punching bag. And I think we sometimes paint with a broad brush and that's maybe fair, but I feel like this piece was very affirming to me because this isn't just any law professors too. These are like leaders in the legal industry, right? Uh, these are like deans at Yale and big names across the board. Yeah. And I, you know, I want to say this does not apply to all of them. This is some of them. Of course. So there were some people on the commission who it was a pleasure to work with. And I emerged from the process more confident than ever in America's future. Well, I mean, overall not, but because of their contributions, <laughs> right. I did. Um, but overall not, yeah. because I really did get the sense that you've got these people who are at prestigious schools and they have comfortable lives and they're kind of invested in the myth of the Supreme Court right. as this wonderful form of principle, and they don't want to disturb that for whatever reason. I mean, the more cynical explanation is that they're kind of bound up in that mythology and they want to send students on to clerk for the Supreme Court. And the less cynical one would be just sort of what they believe in because of the lives that they lead. But in either case, they have a very distorted understanding of what's really happening. Yeah, it's hard to um, differentiate between bad faith and uh, self-delusion. Sometimes, I think, especially in this area and with law professors, there's something about the legal education that I think really prepares you for self-delusion, <laughs> you know, sort of like gets those grooves in your brain well-worn. So uh, you learn to make these arguments so much that you start to believe them. Yeah. And you're taught to accept things as authoritative, even if they don't make any sense. Yeah. You know, and you have to sort of try to figure out what does it mean? What the Supreme Court said? Gosh, it seems like nonsense, but it's the law and it binds everyone. Right, exactly. So I see this as well in like the treatment of, I think this goes back to the treatment of sort of bad faith arguments from the right, which is like you said, if you have a nonsense precedent, your job is to figure out a way to make it make sense. And people take those tools and they apply them to obviously laughable bad faith arguments and, and give them the, the best possible reading. Well, if... What my opponent actually meant was X, Y, and Z and not this nonsense that they plainly said that does everyone a disservice because I, I view this as like a, a, you know, an ideological sort of battlefield. I think a lot of political work gets done in the legal academy. I think that's true, you know, but, but I, I struggle with this really as a teacher. Right. Because what do I say to my students? I mean, I generally view my job as a, a teacher to be to give my students the best arguments on both sides of an issue. And here's what some people find convincing. Here's what other people find convincing. And here are the arguments you're going to have to confront if you go out and practice. And you'd better understand them because you can't defeat them unless you understand them. And then, you know, as the years have gone by, it's gotten harder and harder to make sense of some of the arguments. Right. And sometimes I'm just like, this is internally inconsistent. This doesn't have anything to do with the text of the Constitution or any reading of the history. It's just power. Right. Uh, but I, I always feel a sense of sort of failure when I have to say that. Yeah, I think that's fair. I think it's, I think it's good that you're saying it, though. I think that's important. I think that needs to be said more in general. I don't think I had a single professor say that in law school. And I had some good ones. I liked a lot of my professors. Uh, they pushed me to think 
in productive ways, but that is refreshingly honest <laughs> to hear. So, so thank you for that. Yeah. I mean, it's a narrow set of cases. Sure. I think most of the time there's something sort of sensible going on, but then there are some cases that it's just almost impossible to explain. And I think I do have to just be honest about that. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's, I think that's right. I, I mean, I think one of the reasons we have purchase on law school campuses is the sense among students that their professors aren't always being honest with them, that they privately believe one thing, but in the classroom, they say something else. And then to hear us tell them what the professors believe privately about what the law is and how it operates. I don't know. I might be wrong. Maybe we're just really funny and, <laughs> and everybody likes us. Well, I mean, the only thing that I would question there is whether the professors do actually believe privately the same things that you do. Because I think a lot of the professors buy into the mythology of the Supreme Court and the idea that Supreme Court justices are, you know, one in a million people doing this job that no one else could do, which really isn't true. <laughs> no, it's not. I mean... Come on, everybody knows like uh, Brett Kavanaugh. Like it's like a dime a dozen in uh, you know high end schools. Oh yeah, I went to private school in Washington D.C. Not that many years behind Brett Kavanaugh, and I I totally knew people like him. Yeah. Yeah, you can go to a federal society luncheon and meet like eight Neil Gorsuches. There's nothing special about these guys, or the liberals for that matter. I mean, I greatly admire Sonia Sotomayor, but. I firmly believe there are thousands of people who could do that job. But yeah, there's like an obsession with credentialism that goes into that as well, which I think is sort of self-flattering, right? Because if the, the justices are very special and the backgrounds that make them special are really important, then people with similar backgrounds who went to elite schools and who had clerked for great judges they are also special, right? There's like a sort of, there's a narcissism to it. Like we're all special. We're all great. Yeah. I, th I mean, I think, yes, a lot of what goes on with the Supreme Court, with the legal academy generally is sort of the self-perpetuation and legitimation of this hierarchy. Yeah. It's the elite justifying its superiority. Yeah. You know, I had hoped to press you. And <laughs> and but I'm agreeing with you too much. But that's, that's gratifying. You know, we had Rokana on and we we interviewed him about his term limit bill. And at the time, his explanation for why term limits would be constitutional seemed sort of like too cute by half, sort of just a rhetorical game. Oh, the Constitution says they, they have their office in good behavior. But what if their office, quote unquote, only meant, you know, 18 years on the Supreme Court and then X number of years as a retired or senior justice, right? I know one of our co-hosts, Peter, was not persuaded. I've always been of the sort of real politic mind that like, look, nobody would have challenging to stand a Supreme Court term limited bill except for justices themselves. And I don't think maybe Clarence Thomas I don't think most of them would go to court fighting this, you know, I think they would just accept it. But you make a case, I think a persuasive one that no, in fact, there are both statutes and Supreme Court precedent on point that suggest that uh, term limits would be constitutional. Could you like maybe at a high level describe that? Yeah. So, I mean, it, it basically is the argument you described. Right. And, you know, certainly going in, I thought, that's just being cute. But if the Supreme Court says we're going to be cute with the language, then that's what the law is. Right. 
and they've done much more implausible things. And then what struck me was they've actually done this. Right. So, you know, when you have a judge who retires or a Supreme Court justice who retires, mm -hmm. a judge who takes senior status, they keep on deciding cases. Right. And, like, how can they do that? They're exercising the judicial power of the United States. Right. right? They must still be judges in some sense. Right. And what the Supreme Court has said about this, there was a case from the 1940s where Congress tried to reduce someone's salary. Mm -hmm. There's a judge who took senior status, so he wasn't in regular active service anymore, but he still participated in deciding cases sometimes. Congress said, you retired. You're not a judge. You don't hold the office right. anymore. And the Supreme Court said, no, he does hold the office. Otherwise, he couldn't participate in deciding cases. So they've actually done this. Right? Right. They said, Supreme Court justices, under our current practice, the statute says they retain the office. If you look at letters that they sign now, they call themselves justices of the Supreme Court. David Souter's retirement letter, right. which I looked at, said, I'm taking senior status and I intend to continue to render substantial service as an associate justice, which he's now doing, deciding cases on the First Circuit. He's still a justice of the Supreme Court. So we've done it this way under the statute. The Supreme Court has approved it with respect to Court of Appeals judges. And if you think about it in terms of the goals of judicial independence, I actually don't think there's a problem. No, I was surprised at how persuasive I found this I mean, if the Supreme Court has literally already ruled on this precise point, that seems to foreclose any counterargument. Well, the reason that it's different, sort of the intuitively obvious reason and the reason that a lot of people fasten on, is right now for Supreme Court justices retiring or for appellate judges taking senior status, it's voluntary. Right. And the term limits plan says after 18 years, this happens automatically. Right. But my view of that is that unless you can give me some very good reason why it's different, I think the question is, do they hold the office or not? Right. Not did this change occur voluntarily? Right. And if they still hold the office after doing it voluntarily, I think they still hold the office if it happens automatically. Yeah, I, I think that's right. I saw a suggestion from Jed Sugarman on Twitter that rather than term limits, regularized appointments without having a fixed size of the Supreme Court um, would be a good good reform. So, you know, it could be eight, it could be 12, it could be 10 or 11, or, you know, every president gets two appointments, and when people die or retire, it shrinks, and when they appoint new ones, it expands. I thought that was interesting. I'm curious to hear your thoughts on that. I think that that would be an improvement. Yeah. I think it's not as good as putting people on at regular intervals and also taking them off, because you do still have some of the st same problems with strategic retirements and people staying on to maintain a partisan coalition. Right. But it's an improvement. Yeah. And that's clearly constitutional. I don't, I don't know anyone who suggests that's not constitutional. Right. So I guess my last point is radicalized by the complacency of the elite liberal legal establishment. <laughs> you have come around on the idea of expanding the court. Do you see any uh, concerns or drawbacks with that? Are you like hesitant on it? Or is it a full-throated zeal of the convert sort of thing? Well, I mean, I hate to say this, but <laughs> it's kind of a full-throated zeal of the what do we have to lose? Yeah. Because the situation is bad and the situation is getting worse. And sure, there are downsides to court expansion and I can see it being a disaster. But I very plausibly see doing nothing being a disaster. So I think the alternatives are worse. 
I firmly believe that. I don't firmly believe that this is going to lead us to the promised land and everything will work out beautifully. But I do firmly believe that if we do nothing, things are bad. I think that's right. And I think that's a, I think that's a good point to uh, wrap this up on. So thank you very much for your time. Uh, this was a lot of fun. If there's anything you want to plug right now is a good time <laughs> to do so. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So I have a book coming out in June. It's called The Nation That Never Was, Reconstructing America's Story. And it suggests a totally different understanding of who we are as a nation and where our values come from, because it locates our identity in the Civil War and Reconstruction rather than the revolution and the founding. And it says, basically, the founding, if you carry on those values, that's the Confederacy. Right. So we should view founding America as a nation that we defeated, not as the people whose heirs we are. I like the sound of that. Excellent. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. That was Michael and Professor Kermit Roosevelt from Penn. Michael, it feels like you radicalized him a bit. Would you Would you say that? <laughs> he was already 95% of the way there. Mm -hmm. I didn't think it was interesting that I was constantly, you know... I wanted it to be a friendly interview, but I wanted to push him, right? Because he was a part of this commission, mm -hmm. and we've been critical of the of the work product and, and all that. And so I wanted to have an honest conversation with him about it, and I was just surprised at, like, how much he was agreeing with me. Right. Um, and sometimes even, like, going a step further <laughs> than me. So, mm -hmm. but it did feel like, you know, we were sort of coming to uh, a mutual understanding together that uh, maybe neither of us was quite at prior to the conversation. Mm -hmm. And I enjoyed it. It was really gratifying. Yeah. I mean, it's always good to get another white man's perspective on these things. That's what we need. Yeah. Next week, INS v. Elias Zacharias, a case about uh, shipping human beings back to war zones. Oh boy! All right, I don't even—I don't even want to describe the case right now. Let's—you'll see. <laughs> Follow us on Twitter at Five Four Pod. Thanks for subscribing. We love and appreciate you. We'll see you next week. Bye bye. Five to Four is presented by Prologue Projects. This episode was produced by Rachel Ward with editorial support from Leon Nafok and Andrew Parsons. Our production manager is Persia Verlin. Our artwork is by Teddy Blanks at Chips NY, and our theme song is by Spatial Relations. Woo, what an interview. <laughs> I would love to see Rachel's face at times like this. <laughs>